In this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast, we're talking about muscle growth, muscle recovery, and nutrition. So this is the second part to the, um, well, first part of this little recovery series that we started a couple weeks ago. We did kind of push things back a little bit just due to all the events that have been going on in the country, in the world over the last one to two weeks. Um, So we felt it was important to kind of step back and take a little break. And you can uh, listen to our full statement on that in our mini episode, if you will, um, that we uploaded earlier on uh, June 8th. So there's that for you. Um, But yeah, so thank you for tuning in and thank you for listening. And hope you enjoy this podcast and learn all kinds of new things. So starting off here, we're going into muscle physiology and recovery and injuries. So someone mentioned when they were listening to the first episode that they wanted more information on the physiology of exercise as far as it relates to the muscles. So To touch on that, exercise literally damages the muscles. You've probably heard the expression, you know, you you burn yourself down to build yourself back up. Um, And that holds true with exercise. Exercise is literally damaging and causing micro tears to accumulate within your muscles. So, you know, you're going to see things like swelling, soreness. Uh, You might see reduced strength. So, for example, if I go in and do my one rep max bench press today, and then tomorrow I go back and try it again, odds are, you know, that tomorrow's numbers are going to be lower than today's numbers, because pushing yourself to that level, to that extent, is really going to damage the muscles. Um, So that's one thing we try to do when we program, is we typically use like a split that are a training split. So you know, you don't work arms Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, or maybe you do. Maybe you're someone who, you know, arm day is every day. Um, but, you know, we try and mitigate the risk from overtraining. So again, um, using split type uh, approaches or incorporating rest days on occasion, um, that sort of thing. Um, so we're the things that I look for as a trainer and a student physical therapist um, to monitor, you know, recovery status um, to make sure, you know, when we're training, make sure we're not going too hard, too excessive. We're looking at soreness. So um, you've probably heard of DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness. And for most people, that's normal, especially when you start a new program you're probably going to experience some DOMS if you aren't in the gym right now. Um, You know, I know a lot of fitness centers are just starting to reopen from quarantine. So, you know, when you get back in the gym for your first week, you know, first time benching or barbell squatting or whatever in, you know, three months, you know, you're probably going to experience some of that DOMS kind of feeling. And that's normal for, you know, 48 hours. I'll even go out and say 72 hours, two to three days. However, you know, there's cases where we see soreness that lasts five days, six days after after um, exercise or activity. And that's not normal. 
Um, we don't want that. So, you know, part of the ways that we can help prevent that from occurring is effective recovery, which was what the first half of this episode was all about, you know, stretching, foam rolling, uh, sleeping properly, um, you know, just making sure we take care of ourselves because we know exercise is good, but exercise like anything in excess can be bad, uh, especially when it's coupled with a lack of recovery. Um, so now I want to get into a specific application example of that with running um, and other activities, but specifically we're going to hone in on um, running. So muscle tissue itself, um, as we just said, is broken down as a result of exercise. Um, So if you have excessive muscle breakdown, you have what's known as rhabdomyolysis, which is actually a life-threatening condition of muscle breakdown. And it's typically seen in the summertime because it's warmer, it's hotter, people are exercising outside in the heat. Um, So just be aware of that and make sure you're hydrating, listen to your body. You know, if you're really feeling it, if it's if your workout is really painful, you know, it might not be good to push through it um, when you're considering, um, you know, summertime and the heat and the rhabdomyolysis condition. Um, and now honing in on runners, like I said, I would, um, because running is the most popular activity that people do. And it's also the most common way people get injured uh, when we look at exercise. And when we talk about strenuous, prolonged exertion in the heat, running kind of comes to mind for that. So you have to be aware of the rhabdomyolysis as well. But um, I'm going to start by saying one thing. I am all for running. I am all for endurance training. I will advocate people do that any day of the week. Um, you know, you look at America and cardiovascular disease is basically our number one killer and endurance training, running, all these things can help to offset cardiovascular disease or reverse it entirely. Um, so I'm all here for running, um, but I'm here for running properly. Um, and well, when we look at people who run, um, a lot of people, a lot of runners don't run properly. So I'm going to start by referencing a review from the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And they looked at 250 women, so 250 female runners, who at minimum ran 20 miles a week. So about, what, three miles a day, uh, seven days a week at minimum. Now, that's a pretty low number because I've seen competitive female athletes who run 60, 70, even 80 miles a week. And I've seen male runners running 100 plus miles a week, which I don't even think I drive that much to tell you the truth. Um, So there's a big difference between the cut for this study and the amount of running we see people do. So the study looked at injury rates. And in a two-year time period, 60% of the runners 
were injured to the point where they need where they needed medical attention. So if they had two hundred forty nine participants, we said about a hundred forty four needed medical attention, um, and then they checked biomechanical data. So they had the runners run over a force plate, which uh, measures your ground reaction forces, um, which are you know the forces that occur when your foot hits the ground when you're running. And I'm going to read this uh, statement that they found uh, word for word here. So they said, all impact-related variables were higher in those with medically diagnosed injuries compared with those who had never been injured. Impact loading was associated with bony and soft tissue injuries. Now that's interesting because basically what we're saying is runners are very at risk for injury. And if you're injured once, you're displaying or you're likely displaying higher ground reaction forces, which is um, synonymous with or puts you at increased risk for future injuries. Now, I will say this is a good study, but it's not a great study in the sense that it's lacking some small things. Um, so the study only looked at female runners, not males. Uh, we don't have the exact mileage of each runner. We just know that they ran at least 20 miles. Um, and there was some difference in causation there too. Um, so we don't know if there was any genetic predisposition in different runners. We don't know if there was different running forms or anything like that. Um, so my take on running is make sure you get your running form analyzed um, by someone who knows what good running form is. And the reason I say that again is, you know, running, it's a very popular sport. I know a lot of people have been running more because of, you know, being quarantined and they don't have equipment at home like they do at the gym, so they were running, which, you know, again, I'm all for running, and I cannot say that enough. Just make sure you do it properly. Get your form checked. Make sure you're running properly to begin with. Um, you know, it's kind of like riding a bike. You know, before you get on a bike and ride your bike, you set the seat. You make sure the tire pressure is uh, where you want it to be. You make sure the brakes work. You check everything out before you just jump on and go. When it comes to running, your legs are your bike. So before you run, make sure everything is okay. So make sure your form is okay. Make sure your shoes are okay and in good condition. Um, just do these little prehab kind of things because as that study shows, if you get injured once, you're likely at higher risk for injury moving forward. So the best way to prevent the injuries is to make sure they never happen. So that's all well and good. Um, other thing, slowly increase your mileage. I'm talking like 10% per week. So if you start running 10 miles this week, the next week you run 11 miles and then 12 miles. And I know that's a slow progression, um, but there's other ways to progress outside of just sheer running volume. And I think that's something people misunderstand is they, you know, they like to run, so they just run more when you can very easily mix up your running. So what I mean by that is I don't run 20 miles a week. Um, I do a couple 
you know, slower runs, three to four miles. But most of my endurance training is high intensity, short distance. So either hill sprints or um, you probably saw the video of me doing the hill sprint, dragging the 250 pound tractor tire up the hill. So, you know, I resisted hill sprint. Um, I do walking lunges up the hill. So, you know, I'll try and accumulate half a mile of walking lunges. And I'm telling you, you know, running is, to me anyways, it can feel easy depending on the distance. So let's say we're talking about running a mile versus doing walking lunges for a mile. If you do a mile walking lunges, your legs are dead. If you run a mile, if you're in decent shape, average shape, odds are you're doing okay. You know, you could probably keep going. Um, so just finding ways to not necessarily increase the distance, but modify, um, you know, how you're working at the distance you're at. So I know that was kind of off topic because you're probably here focusing in on the nutrition aspect, but I wanted to touch on a, a little bit on uh, physiology and the running there because I've seen so many people running and I'd rather talk about it now and make sure we're all doing the right thing before, you know, injuries start racking up. So diving into nutrition now, um, I'm breaking nutrition up into two segments here. So we're going to start with pre-performance nutrition. So I'm talking what you eat before you exercise, before your game, that sort of thing. And, you know, this can really make or break your performance. Um, so you've probably seen, you know, even bodybuilders have a strict diet that they follow leading up to a competition. Um, you know, athletes in high school, you've probably carb loaded, pasta nights, those sort of things. And this is probably going to be, you know, an unpopular answer to this. I know everyone seems to look for, you know, the optimal formula, the optimal ratio of carbs to protein to sodium to potassium. I mean, you name it. Um, but basically the best way to go about, uh, you know, with nutrition here is self-experimentation. And what I mean by that is there is not one size fits all to nutrition. Look at all the different diet plans that are out there, you know, vegan, keto, paleo, um, Atkins, South Beach, Zone, you name it. There's so many different dietary approaches and they're all pretty popular. You know, there's a lot of people who do keto, a lot of people who do intermittent fasting, a lot of vegetarians, a lot of vegans, and basically because all of us are different, we're all going to have different things that work best for us. Um, so, you know, if a vegan diet works well for you, then stick to a vegan diet. If you think a keto diet works really well for you, then stick to a keto diet. You know, I can't put myself in your shoes and tell you, you know, what feels best and what's working the best. You kind of have to judge your nutrition based on how you feel. So what I mean by this is, you know, we're talking pre-performance nutrition right now. So if you're on a keto kind of uh, diet here, 
you'd probably look at something like macadamia nuts or almonds, cashews, walnuts, something along those lines as your pre-exercise meal or snack. And that might be one to two hours beforehand. And that low-carb snack is going to fill your body with dietary fats and, again, put you right in that ketogenic state for performance. How is what we know about um, the respiratory exchange ratio, we know that if you're um, oxidizing primarily fats, you're going to work at a lower respiratory exchange ratio. So that could be good if you're into endurance training, especially like marathon type stuff, because now you're working at a lower respiratory exchange ratio and you're going right into that ketogenic state where your body is breaking down fats for energy, which is a more long-term fuel source than carbs. Now, if you're someone who's doing like sprinting, for example, sprinters probably would not go well with a ketogenic diet because they need that fast glycolytic type energy stuff that you would get from carbs. However, if you're a sprinter and you're on a keto diet and it works for you, then stick to it. You know, if something works, then go for it. Um, So I don't really advocate for one specific dietary approach, although I will touch on what I do later in this episode. Um, I just think everyone is unique and everyone has something that works for them. And the best way to find that is to try it. So if you think intermittent fasting might work for you, then try intermittent fasting. And if it works, then stick to it. And if it doesn't, then, you know, on to the next one. And I realize some people might think, oh, you know, they're just bouncing around from fad diet to fad diet. But in reality, you're learning about your body. You're getting in tune with your body. Um, so maybe maybe you even avoid like milk or um, gluten or something like that. Um, and you just monitor how you feel after you've made just small changes like this. You monitor your mood, monitor your workouts, just do a you know simple zero to 10 scale and rate yourself every day and see if the numbers are higher. Um, now, diving into this a little more, um, I kind of touched on it a little bit in my little sprinter runner tangent there a minute ago, but in general, when you look at the books, um, carbohydrates prior to ex- exercise um, will improve performance. And what they mean by that is when you eat carbs about, say, an hour before exercise, you're going to have more plasma glucose available in your bloodstream, so more energy available. However, like I said before, this doesn't work for everyone. So when I played soccer, you know, I started each practice and game with a granola bar or a bagel, you know, probably 50 to 100 grams of carbs. Um, granola bar is probably closer to 20. Um, but I didn't feel good when I was uh, running and moving around. And now when I work out and train, I train in the mornings and I'm in a fasted state. So no food, no carbs, nothing. And for some reason for me, that works better. I have more focus, more clarity, more energy. 
um, even with, you know, the intervals and explosive stuff. Again, there's a lot of individual variability with this. You kind of have to play around and see what works for you. Um, For some people, it's going to be, you know, you know, that uh, carbohydrate snack before they work out, some kind of bar or fruit even. Um, And that um, could be, you know, consider the timing 15 minutes before, 30 minutes before, an hour before. Um, I know different companies even make bars specifically as a pre-workout. And I mean a snack bar, granola bar, energy bar kind of thing. So you could look into those. Some people like to do a protein shake before they work out. Or some people like me don't do anything. Um, And then others still prefer a like drink or supplement. And I'm going to touch on those in a minute. Um, But in general, when you're looking at any kind of pre-exercise, pre-workout kind of thing, consider, you know, the timing of your snack. So we just touched on that. Is it 15 minutes before you work out? Is it an hour before? Um, Play around with that. You know, again, sometimes if you eat it half an hour before, it works great. Other times, not, not so good. So consider the timing. Consider the quality of what you're eating. Are you eating a natural whole foods based product? Or are you eating something artificial that came straight from a lab? So consider that. Uh, Consider your emotional state too. Um, So your mood and emotional state can really impact how you perceive things. It can impact how your body breaks down and digests food. Um, And with that, consider the flavor of your snack or drink or whatever it is you're going with. You know, if you're drinking a pre-workout drink, for example and you absolutely hate the taste of it, odds are that's not going to carry over too well for your workout. Um, So just different things to consider and play around with. Again, you have to self-experiment with this stuff. Um, As always, consult your um, healthcare provider before you dive into any of that, though. Um, So on the topic of pre-workout supplements, I do drink a pre-workout supplement. Not every time I work out, sometimes. Um, But it is free from what I call the big three. Um, There's three artificial ingredients that I will not buy anything with the product or with these um, in them. So these ingredients are artificial colors, artificial flavors, and artificial uh, sweeteners. And again, if a product has these, I don't care if it's a bar or a drink, whatever, I automatically rule them out. And I realize this is going to rule out like 90% of pre-workout drinks. And um, I know it's a little bit of a struggle, but I think it's better to avoid them. So artificial colors first here, um, they might come up on your supplement label as red 40, yellow 5, yellow 6, blue 1, um, other different things like that. Basically food coloring. And, um, you know, when you shake up your powder, it's going to turn the water that awesome color. However, evidence exists and the FDA even admits that artificial colors contain carcinogens that can cause cancer, hyperreactivity, hyperactivity, and more. 
And there's research that even points to artificial colors causing allergic reactions. And I'll link to some of these different studies that find this in the show notes, which you can find on the Brawn Body blog at our website, brawnbodytraining.com. Now, I only buy supplements with natural food coloring. Sometimes you can find them without coloring, and they're just this white chalky kind of powder. Um, but natural coloring typically comes from like beetroot or spernulia. So the coloring comes from superfoods and it's a legitimate nature source, so to speak. Um, and I realized that, you know, some people are going to say, you know, there's not enough research if the FDA hasn't, you know, banned artificial colors altogether yet. Um, and I realized that more research is probably needed to determine all the effects of artificial colors on our body. However, what I see is that artificial colors are bad, and I haven't seen anything that says artificial colors are good. So me just being rational, I'm going to avoid what's bad. Um, so moving on to artificial flavors now. The verdict is out on if they're safe or not. Many claim that they're safe. Um, you know, there's studies that say they aren't. But my thing with artificial flavoring is I don't really like the taste. For some reason, I can really taste when something is artificially flavored. It just tastes fake to me. Um, and part of that, I think, is when I eat something, I'm all about the texture and the temperature and that sort of thing. So like if I eat a cinnamon roll, for example, there's something about the consistency and the temperature of one of my grandma's homemade cinnamon rolls, and they're really good, um, that, you know, I really enjoy that. And drinking a cinnamon roll protein shake is not the same because it's a different temperature. I'm not eating it. It's a different consistency and texture. It's just very different. And to me, I don't like the artificial flavor or um, going along with the drink there. So if you have a grape flavored drink, for example, odds are you can taste the difference between a Concord grape artificially flavored drink and grapes that you get fresh off the vine or same with blueberries or anything like that. To me, I just prefer the real, legitimate, natural taste. Um, you know, this is a personal preference. And like I said, there's, you know, a little debate on if they're safe or not. Um, my personal favorite pre-workout, um, as far as flavor goes, comes in this natural strawberry lemonade flavor. And I'm telling you, it is absolutely amazing. Um, I love that flavor combo. And the taste is phenomenal. Um, so that takes us into artificial sweeteners. So again, this is another one. You know, they're still debating, you know, whether or not they're good or not. Um, so there's a lot that we think we know about artificial sweeteners. And there's a lot we don't know. Um, most of the stuff we think we know relates to artificial sweeteners and cancer. And... The studies have been very mixed on this. Um, so the w one thing I will say is 
Um, most supplements contain sucralose, um, which is Splenda. It's cheap. It's 600 times sweeter than sugar. And I mean, it's in everything, protein powders, drinks, um, it's in bars, everything. Um, now, the reason I avoid this is there is some pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sorry, I'm struggling for words right now. Um, well-known, well-respected, or good-sourced, anything like that. Really good research on sucralose and its link to chronic inflammation via disturbing the gut flora. And what I mean by that is your microbiome. So the bacteria that live in your gut. And um, as we progress with this podcast and I get some more and more distinguished guests, I'm going to talk about the importance of the microbiome and the gut flora. Um, There's some specific people I have in mind that I'm hoping to get on to talk about that. Um, But essentially, everything is tied to your gut. So if you have issues with digestion, it can impact your nervous system, it can impact your muscles, it can impact your emotional state, so many different things. So sucralose harms the normal gut flora, so the normal bacteria that should be in your gut that help you with digestion and all that sort of stuff. Um, And there's a strong link between your GI tract and inflammation. Um, So there's different kinds of cell-to-cell junctions in your GI tract, and certain things can cause those junctions to expand. Um, So one, I don't have a link for this in the show notes, um, but if you want to see some sources on it, or if you want to just Google it either way, is um, gluten and it's tied to expanding those cell-to-cell junctions in the GI tract. So eating gluten can actually expand those junctions and cause what's known as a leaky gut in some people, where stuff leaks out of your gut into your body. And of course, that's going to cause an inflammatory and immune response because you have something in your body that's where it shouldn't be, and your body wants to get rid of it. So if you have that chronically, every time you eat, stuff is leaking out. So every time you eat, your body's starting an immune response. That's that's kind of rough. Um, So again, I'm ruling out, I could have dove in a little deeper there, but I'm just kind of scratching the surface to try and stay on track because I can get lost in these tangents. Um, But again... These are three things that I use to rule out pre-workout type drinks and supplements and stuff. I realize that kind of limits your buying choices. Um, And, you know, feel free to do your own research, make your own decisions, look into this on your own. I'm just kind of, you know, from my standpoint where I'm at, I'd rather be safe and stay cautious than risk it. Um, Just because, you know, we're here trying to optimize health and fitness. And a lot of these ingredients do not do that. Um, So one thing I will say to look for, because I said what not to see in a pre-workout drink, things you should look for are um, the arginine, citrulline, um, 
beetroot, something along those um, lines. And the reason I say that is arginine, uh, citrulline, um, beetroot, all of those play into the nitric oxide cycle. Um, so the um, beetroot is high in nitrates, arginine and citrulline are both components of the nitric oxide cycle. Um, and basically the nitric oxide cycle is tied with your urea cycle, so producing urine. So it all starts, I'm going to go through this in detail here. So we're going to start with arginine, which is an amino acid. Arginine will be converted to uh, what's called orthanine, which that process also produce urea, so um, important for urine. Um, so arginine goes to orthanine, which will then be converted to citrulline. And from there, it'll go to arginosusinate. So that's the urea cycle half of this, is arginine to orthanine to citrulline to arginosusinate. Um, so you can see how arginine and citrulline as components of the urea cycle play in there. I'm not done yet though. Um, so the cycle connects with the nitric oxide cycle, which is what we're more interested in, which basically says the conversion of arginine to citrulline will produce nitric oxide in the body, which will then, uh, result in vasodilation. So the blood vessel relaxation that you see in response to exercise, or um, it's called getting a pump, some people say. Um, and the enzyme that uh, catalyzes that arginine to citrulline transaction is called nitric oxide synthase, NOS. Um, and then citrulline goes to arginosusinate, and then the nitric oxide half of it starts over again. So arginine to citrulline to arginosusinate and... Uh, repeat. Now, as you can see, the urea cycle and nitric oxide cycle are tied pretty closely together. So if you take one of these uh, three vasodilators, odds are, you know, sure, you're going to see that vasodilation component, but you're also going to have to pee. So you might not want to take one of these before, you know, if you're planning a run, for example. Um, so that's the nitric oxide cycle. And that's pretty much all I have right now for pre-performance nutrition. I realize I could go deeper on a lot of this stuff. And I realize some of you might be looking for, you know, specific numbers, specific things like that. Um, and again, it's mostly self-experimentation. Find out what works for you. Um, and I will go into more detail on some of these different things later on in future podcasts. Right now we're kind of painting the 30,000 foot view, so to speak. So then when we get to those more narrow topics, it makes a little more sense. So with that, we're going into post-workout nutrition now. So what you eat after your workout is also, you know, self-experimentation. What works best for you? However, um, this is where I'm going to go into what works for me. So after I work out, I drink five grams of creatine monohydrate. And in the future, there's going to be a whole podcast episode all about creatine. So stay tuned for that. Um, but 
Creatine is proven. It is safe for most people. It is effective. Uh, again, check with your doctor before starting it, like all supplements, like all things, and make sure you drink enough water. Um, but I drink five grams of creatine monohydrate after I work out. And I'll fast because, um, again, I work out in the morning. So I'm fasted before I work out. I work out. I drink my creatine, no calories in that. And I'm going to fast until about 12, 1230-ish every day, which is when I have my first meal of the day. So that's about 18 hours, give or take, of fasting. And my brunch, as I call it, is essentially the same every day. I have a four-egg omelet every day. I have a salad with olive oil every day. I have a cup of Greek yogurt, and I have a protein bar every single day um, for brunch. As long as I'm home and I can cook it, that's what I have. Um, and my breakdown on that is simple. So eggs are one of the best sources of protein you can get. They're highly bioavailable. They have a ton of vitamins and minerals and nutrients in them, and they have cholesterol, which also helps to build muscle. Um, and I'll alter what alternate what I put in my omelet, but one of my favorite things is spinach um, because spinach also has a lot of vitamins and minerals that we see being important for building muscle. Um, so I do that. I do the salad with olive oil. Um, and my salad is typically either some kind of spring mix or we grow romaine lettuce right in our garden. So we'll throw that in there, some carrots, um, different things like that. Um, I usually throw a little Parmesan Romano cheese on there. I really like Parmesan cheese uh, and then top it off with some organic extra virgin olive oil. And the olive oil has been a big thing for me. Um, I love the taste. Um, I love the, I can't even explain it. I just have a real strong taste and enjoyment with olive oil. Um, I put it on pizza, pasta, I mean, you name it. I love olive oil. Um, and that has a ton of health benefits in itself. So um, not necessarily for muscle building, but in general, this is kind of a low-carb meal. So, you know, having some extra source of dietary fat, probably a good thing. Um, and then my cup of Greek yogurt, um, I kind of bounce around on what type. Um, I like Faya a lot. Um, I might have pronounced that wrong. Um, I like Danon has the Oikos triple zero. Um, I like some of the different grass-fed yogurts, and uh, I really like the Icelandic uh, skier. Um, again, probably pronounced that wrong too, um, but I like those different yogurts, and loading up with those probiotics to help your body digest while also getting a complete source of protein. Um, so yogurt comes from milk. And because I'm eating Greek yogurt, which means they strain the whey out of the yogurt, all of the protein is straight casein. So you get this awesome source of high quality protein that your body digests real slowly. It takes hours. Um, so a lot of people will drink like a casein protein shake before they go to bed at night to help them kind of get this trickle feed of protein throughout the night when they sleep. Um, 
And essentially eating the Greek yogurt kind of does that for me naturally during the day. So there's kind of that trickle feed of protein throughout the day because I don't eat between lunch and dinner. I just eat lunch and then I eat dinner. Um, and then protein bar. I'm very picky on my protein bars because I actually look at and read the labels extensively. Um, without going into too much detail there, just to try and, you know, in the interest of time, uh, my favorites are the Bulletproof Collagen Protein Bars. Um, Dave Asprey really hit a home run with that. Um, I really like the chocolate fudge brownie flavor. Um, that is 10 out of 10. Um, and I'm not getting paid to say this. This is just what I like. Um, I also like the Oat Mega um, chocolate brownie flavor. So that's a grass-fed whey protein bar. I think it's got about 14 grams of protein in it. Um, really enjoy that one. Um, those are like my top two, really. Um, I've had Quest bars before. Um, I think their flavors are kind of hit and miss. Um, some of their flavors are absolutely awesome. Um, I love their chocolate chip cookie dough flavor, and some of them, for me anyways, are kind of a mess. Um, but again, everyone's different. Everyone has different preferences, so, you know, find out what works best for you. And, you know, some of you might be listening into that, and you might be saying, okay, well, that's a very low-carb kind of brunch there, Dan. Um, so are you keto? Are you paleo? Or what's going on? Um so I typically save my carbs for later at night. So I kind of carb up at dinner. Um, so after um, I eat, I'll usually down a uh, protein shake uh, smoothie kind of thing. So I typically blend up some different berries. Um, I like blueberries, raspberries, um, some pineapple, uh, banana, spinach sometimes even, and then casein protein powder, and then a blend of some different superfood powders. Um, I love the Advocare Reds powder, and I like to add cacao and um, some different greens too. Um, I'll have to share one of my smoothies on uh, uh, my Instagram story there at some point so you can see what all I'm talking about. There's a lot that goes into it, but they taste really good and they're phenomenal for you. So many good nutrients. Um, but again, this is all about self-experimentation. You know, I could sit here and tell you protein after you work out is going to build muscle and then you're going to go out and drink protein after your workout every time. But in reality, it's all about finding out what works best for you. So for me, I don't drink protein right after I work out because I found that the fasting helps me feel better, stay focused, more energized, and more alert throughout the day. And to me, that's more important than getting my protein 10 minutes after I work out. And I'm still able to build a considerable amount of muscle and look, um, I mean, I'll just say halfway decent. Um, you can judge for yourself on that. Um, without, you know, following this strict code that you have to drink protein right after your workout. You know, if you do that and you like it and you feel good, then continue to do it. Simple as that. 
But if you don't drink protein right after you work out and you don't want to, then don't, you know, just make sure you get enough protein throughout the day. And again, I realize that this probably isn't what you're looking for coming to this podcast. You're probably looking for research, studies, data, you know, numbers. And I thought long and hard about this this episode. And, you know, I realized that nutrition is so different for people. You know, what works for me might not work for you and vice versa. So I'm not going to sit here and spit out a bunch of numbers that worked best for, um, you know, this group in a study right now, because again, we're painting the picture. We're doing a 30,000 foot view right now. And we're going to dive into those deeper topics like creatine, like casein protein, like different things like that in future podcast episodes. Um, So again, self-experiment, find what works best for you. Um, Because again, you know, if I was going by that whole protein right after you work out kind of thing, I would have never found that fasting works best for me. And again, it's what works best for you. It could be a vegan diet. It could be a paleo diet. It could be something totally different, something we haven't even heard of yet. Um, So check into that. Um, if you're out there wondering how to like, you know, say you're intrigued by what I was talking about with how I eat, um, I don't know if there's a set label for it, but essentially you're looking at intermittent fasting for about 18 hours a day, and then you're adding in a modified paleo or mini carb cycling approach because I cycle my carbs or time my carbs during the day. Um, And I would say modified paleo because most of what I eat is very natural. Like I said, we get a lot right from our garden. Um, We buy grass-fed, grass-finished beef, and we eat that with our dinners different times. Uh, I love grass-fed, grass-finished meat pressed into a burger on the grill, um, stuff like that. And, um, you know, one thing I'll touch on too, because it's summer and, you know, people are trying to get shredded and all. Um, If I want to lean out, then I can just reduce my carbohydrate and overall caloric intake and body fat drops down real quick. Um, So that's about all I've got for today. I know that was a lot of information, yet not a lot of information. Um, Again, it's big on self-experimentation and that's my biggest takeaway for this episode go out and play around find what works best for you and roll with that you know don't force things if you're not feeling right about them so with that thank you so much for listening to our podcast episode today feel free to like and subscribe to our episode um, our podcast here Feel free to share it with a friend. I'd really appreciate it if you did that. And if you do share our podcast with a friend, please reach out to us on Instagram, on Facebook, Snapchat, WhatsApp, or whatever. Um, we're pretty much everywhere uh, at Braun Body, B-R-A-W-N-B-O-D-Y, or visit us online at brawnbodytraining.com. Let me know you shared it with a friend. Um, Let me know your thoughts. Tell me how you were um, 
feeling or if you learned anything, and I'd love to talk about it with you or thank you for sharing this uh, with someone you know. So with that, have a great rest of your day.